Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my fellow creators. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast that celebrates creativity, the creative class, and creative culture worldwide. I'm your host, Sourdough. And on today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by a very good friend, a friend that when it comes to art, I think can kind of do it all. Uh, I'm not so sure what she doesn't do, to really be honest. Uh, but maybe we'll get into that today. I am thrilled to have my good friend from Sugar Press Art, the one and only Ann Martin. Hello, and thank you for having me. Hey, Ann, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. So great to have you in the studio. Great to have you here. Glad the two of us are together. If we had only had Greg and Man. Shout out Greg and Man. Yes. What are they? Those, those slackers, what yeah, are they up to? They're, they're out working, but I could have had three of my favorite men all in the same room. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Well, you know, well, fantasies, I guess, or something. I don't know. Well, I'm so glad you were able to make it out. I know we've been trying to do this for a while with your schedule and my schedule and uh, everyone's so damn busy. Yes. Always. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we were just talking about sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. You have a, a bit of a cold you can't shake. That's right. <laughs> How much sleep did you get last night? Last night I got seven hours, so not bad. <laughs> oh, that's unheard of for yes. you. But I do this thing when I actually do get a n- good night's sleep is I'm just working in my dreams. <laughs> right. It's not Solving problems yes. as you sleep. Multitask. They call that multitasking. Yes. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So it's afternoon here, two-ish, something like that. How's your day been? What what have you been up to this morning? What's been keeping you busy? Oh, just the usual answering emails, making sure the artists all have what they need, going over contracts, Mm -hmm. (laughs) getting new additions ready to go. Yes, yes. Well, so just to level set for our listeners' uh, benefit... Tell us about Sugar Press Art, what you guys do, who you do it for, et cetera, et cetera. So Sugar Press Art is only a little over three years old. I launched it on Earth Day because everything we do is Mm eco-friendly. The idea was is digital printing had finally gotten to the point that I was really happy with it as far as the quality went. Sure. And then out came some eco-friendly papers. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, now is the time. So we launched. And at that time, I had been working with 20th century master's art. Mm-hmm. I'd been doing Picasso, Miro, and things like that. I really didn't know any living artists. So I really started from nothing and had to just reach out, 
find friends, make friends. Turns out dead artists are much easier to work with. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what we've learned. Yes. <laughs> While we love our contemporary artists, <laughs> the dead ones are far easier to manage. So when you were working with the dead artists, the mm -hmm. Picassos and the Muros and the Pollocks and whoever, uh, what were you doing? What was going on there? Well, I worked first for a publisher when I moved to Los Angeles. He was a publisher. That's where I first got the publishing bug and learned the do's and don'ts of publishing. But sure. then he also had an extensive collection. He had the world's largest collection of Picasso ceramics. Wow. He had published Dolly, had published Warhol. So I had all of that information right at my fingertips and was trained by someone who had been doing it for 60 years. Yeah. And who was this person? Edward Weston was his name. He was originally from New York, but moved to Los Angeles in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. How did you find him originally? How did he find you? Craigslist. <laughs> no kidding. I had literally yeah. been in LA for two weeks. Sure, <laughs> Craigslist sure. is where you go. <laughs> totally, totally. Wow, that's super cool. So when you talk about publishing, I'm guessing books, like art books. No, he also, he did limited edition uh, lithographs. He okay. did limited edition mezzotints. And then he also did do a few books. What he did with Warhol was the pop-up book that a lot of people are familiar mm -hmm. with. That literally has things that pop up, balloons that pop out. Yeah, right. So let's just clarify because I worked in book publishing for a long time. So when I hear the word publishing, I automatically think of books. But in the art world, prints and art prints are also called publishing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a, it's a similar type contract that the artist and the print publisher have with with each other. So it's very similar as a writer would have with a mm. book publisher. Now, what qualified you at that time to work with this gentleman? Well, I do have a degree from mm -hmm. the University of Southern Indiana yep. in fine art. Yep. And right after graduating, I ran the university's gallery for quite a while. Okay. And yeah. Kind of leads to where I am now, though, and the fact that I now realize that the entire time that I was in art school, I was always more worried about my friend's art and worried how their shows were going to look. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm like living my dream. I'm doing exactly so what I'm supposed itch. to do. You found an itch. And you know what I'm realizing, too, is that you and my wife have something in common in that she realized at a certain point in her journey working in entertainment that she was her passion was helping others on their scripts, giving them notes, giving them feedback. And in many ways, you have a similar story that you were really, you know, uh, concerned about your friend's presentation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up, you were an artist, uh, I'm guessing, painting, drawing, sculpt. What were you doing? Mostly as a child, painting and drawing. Mm -hmm. On your on your mother's living room wall? Yes, and yeah. I did not believe in the rules of staying inside the lines in the coloring books. <laughs> of course <laughs> That not. was ludicrous. Yes. <laughs> Which brings me to a, my question for you. Oh, no. So, you're, flipping, you're, yes. you're flipping on me here. Okay. So I go around wearing this pin all the time, and so everyone asks me, what is not real art? Well, I know what to tell them as far as what you do, mm -hmm. but as far as why the name, mm. I've been making up my own. What, <laughs> so what you have need you been saying? What have you been, what, what, what's the shtick? What have you been saying? My shtick is that you just can't define art. And so this is rebellion against people who think you can define art as one thing. That's a very acceptable answer. First prize for you. 
Well, you know, it's funny because it's a completely ridiculous statement, isn't it? Not real art, which is part of the reason why I love it and the charm of it. And coming up with it, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer in some ways because so many of the artists I've respected over the years, I think pretty much any art movement through history, right, was told by the gatekeepers and intelligentsia of the day, you know, that's not real art, Jackson Pollock or whatever, right? And so many of our contemporary artist friends, you know, are are pushing up against what can be a very pretentious, elitist, conservative art world who wants to dictate what is or isn't art and control the market and control, you know, so, and by nature, I'm a provocateur. I'm a bit of a, bit of a punk, bit of a rebel. I like to, to poke my finger in places that irritate and confuse. So not real art just felt like a, a fun place to start, but you know, more specifically, I wanted to create an inclusive space and not real art felt inclusive, believe it or not. And interestingly, when I talk to artists about it, they get the joke immediately. They get the satire immediately. When I talk to some gallerists, some collectors, some, you know, you know, more conservative friends in the art world, they sort of scratch their head and say, I, I don't get it. What do you mean? Not real art. Well, we're not for you. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, so thank you for asking. It is supposed to be uh, fun and, and a bit humorous and and connote the fact that we actually, one of our pet peeves is self-importance. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We love what we do. We love our, our art is critical to uh, human culture and the contributions artists, artists make to human culture are invaluable and important. And we take that very seriously. But at the end of the day, we want to have fun and we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. I agree. And that's kind of the brilliance of the good side of social media is so many of these artists who the establishment would not have accepted can go and gain their own following and their own popularity by just showing their work themselves. And that's right. It's amazing. That's right. Yeah. I, I've argued and have said that, you know, arguably this is the best time in history to be an artist. You have more tools, more opportunities, more mediums than ever. And yet there are still big challenges. And, you know, in fact, in terms of not real art and the podcast and why we're doing the podcast and why we have the website, why we have the conference, why we have the grant, the whole ethos behind it, why we exist, our mission is really about helping artists promote their work and tell their stories worldwide. And obviously we're, we're small right now, we're local, we're growing, but that's the goal. That's the vision because you know, the one thing that one of the things that artists need, I think, and want, and I believe this because I've talked to them and they've told me as such, they want to need help uh, promoting their work and telling their stories and to create a space that celebrates them, that showcases them, that cheerleads uh, on their behalf is really what Not Real Art is about. We're not here to critique. There's enough critics out there. We don't want to add to that noisy conversation. We're here to celebrate and elevate and do that in a fun, friendly, entertaining way that hopefully brings new buyers into the, the space because I believe that there are potentially millions of people who are turned off by the conventional art world, turned off by galleries and art fairs. They won't go there. They can't afford maybe that level of art anyway, but they can afford $1,000. 
or 500 bucks or 5,000 bucks or maybe even 10,000 bucks. And if we can help to get those stories out there and promote those artists and connect with sort of new buyers through storytelling, through a more entertaining approach, maybe we can grow the marketplace. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a lot of the reasons that Sugar Press and Not Real Art have been able to partner so well together. Sugar Press sort of unintentionally, unintentionally became more like co-op of artists and the fact that, you know, we don't just publish one type of art. And then even when we publish it, then the relationships grow. We help find the artists shows to be in. We hang the shows. We create the shows. We help them with contracts. We help them find, you know, walls when they want to do murals. And then the artists do the same thing with us. You know, when we need graphic design done, when we need, you know, whatever, we, we really work as a family. Yeah. And that's it, isn't it? I mean, to find your tribe, to find your community is, well, it's a, it's a blessing and a gift when you're able to, but the problem in the art world is often so fragmented as, you know, certainly on the artist side, you know, they're often working alone or, you know, in, you know, who knows where they're at in, in the world working, but it, it is hard to find your colleagues. It is hard to find your tribe, your family to work with. And when you do find people such as we have found each other that, you know, you share common values, you just generally dig each other and like hanging out and you have this mutual passion and love for, you know, art and artists. It's amazing what you can do. And it is so much harder when you're alone and easier when you team up. But I'm grateful for, for the stuff we've been doing. Certainly. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, because while it has been, you were at our conference in March, I mean, you, you heard us talking about the stuff, but as I've said then, and I, I'll say it again now, while it is wonderful to be an artist today with all these tools and technologies, you can bring your art to the world. You can bring your art straight to the buyer. You don't have, you can leapfrog over the galleries. You can leapfrog over the system, if you want to put it that way. The reality is you still have the challenge of being an effective digital marketer because that's when you have a website and you have a product, just because you build it doesn't mean they will come. And so you have to promote, you have to market. And that means you've got to think about content marketing and digital marketing and SEO and AdWords and all this stuff. That is exactly why marketing today is harder than ever. And the average tenure for a CMO at a publicly traded company right now is 19 months. And, you know, if you think about a CMO at a publicly traded company, arguably that person went to business school, maybe maybe even they went to a fancy business school like University of Chicago or Harvard or Yale or whatever, and they still are having a hard time doing it. What chance in hell do we have? Right. right of, of, so, you know, as I've thought deeply about it, the one thing that I kept coming back to was like, because, you know, the question is, well, what can we do? Well, how can we help? How, you know, and I just kept coming back to storytelling, you know, helping people tell their stories, promote it and get it out there. And so here we are. Well, on that subject, one bit of advice for artists, and this is will be infuriating, but you can make it happen. <laughs> if you can, if you're trying to work on your SEO and doing it with Google, just keep calling them. Keep calling them. You'll get some people that are nice, some that are not nice. If they're not nice, just say thank you and hang up and try again. Yeah. Because you will find someone nice who will help you. They'll help you get it loaded into your website. They'll get it all set up for you and it can work. 
for sure. And, you know, the frustrating thing is also is that they move the target on us all the time, right? Whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Google, whatever it is, you know, somebody changes the algorithm, they change their policies, whatever the case is. And it is a maddening thing. And it's, and it's, oh, you're not alone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in your anger and frustration, it's not just you. It, it isn't you, it's them. And everybody's pissed off at them too. And everybody's having the same battles, but it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a real thing and it's reality. And so you just kind of have to embrace it. You know, it's interesting to sort of see, you know, the changes happening because, you know, you have some artists that are, you know, quite proactive in embracing these technologies and these things. And they sort of take it on as a puzzle or a, or a challenge, or they're just very entrepreneurial or ambitious and, you know, and, and like to use that part of their brain or whatever. And then you, of course, have artists that, that don't want to go there at all. And, you know, I don't know exactly what they're doing to promote or sell their art, but it's not going to sell itself. No, it does not. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely does not. It's not going to sell itself. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's why we started the conference in March and we're going to do it again next March because I don't think that, well, I don't think, I mean, I know majority of artists out there don't have good business practices. And if we can bring knowledge sharing um, and bring experts and bring other colleagues to, to a room, to a space to so that we can all meet and learn from one another, then, you know, maybe we can start changing that. You know, I think that, you know, part of the problem is the, is the fragmentation because it's easy to feel like when, when you're alone and you're striving in your silos it's easy to get pessimistic and it's easy to think that the challenges are kind of insurmountable or not worth the effort or whatever. And, you know, I think when you come together and you, and you can have community and you start sharing, you realizing, no, everybody else is having similar challenges and it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not acceptable to sit on your hands. I don't think. And that's the other thing, like, you know, part of the reason why we're doing this is because I feel like sunlight is the best disinfectant. So if through the podcast or through the conference and through the storytelling, we can help to create water cooler moments, bring people together, shine a light on the common struggle, maybe start, maybe people will start feeling more empowered to sort of taking more initiatives uh, in their own in advocating for themselves and, and working harder to sell. Yes, absolutely. And that's maybe one thing that a lot of studio artists can learn from quote unquote street artists or yeah. graffiti artists because those men and women have are out there on the streets and interact with each other more often and do have a more communal feel because they're literally working side by side mm-hmm. and where studio artists are often, you know, in their own studio, in their own thing, and don't get that feeling of community that they need to support them and share ideas. Yeah. You know, everybody is at a different, you know, everybody has their reality, you know, and an artist's journey to their studio may be very different than a graffiti's artist's journey to that epic burner or whatever. And, but yet there is this, and, you know, historically there was a real wall, right? Between fine art and commercial art for all kinds of reasons over the last 15 or 20 years, technology being, you know, principal reason that wall has, has been obliterated. And so you have this, 
kind of merging of, of worlds in many ways. And we certainly can learn from each other. Really, Warhol did it, but yeah. it really took the rest of the world to realize what had happened and really take action on that. It took another 30 years. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, every everybody's different, too. Like, you know, I, I had, there's a woman, I won't mention her name. She's doing some really interesting, I'll talk about her a little bit, and, 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 and you might know who I'm talking about, you may not. But what I love about what she's doing is that she is focused on female artists, and her approach to selling those artists is incredibly novel. And that is she does, she, <laughs> my word's not hers, but, you know, she's using the Tupperware model. Okay. She's bringing people into her home for an intimate gathering with the artist and artists and some of their artworks. And she's selling strictly out of her home with these parties, these private little parties. And, you know, she's doing very well, uh, I guess, from what I gather. Well, we have a mutual friend. Our friend said, oh, you know, you should be on, you know, Scott's Sourdough's podcast. And she, you know, listened to a couple podcasts and she said, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. You know, I like what you're doing, but it, I don't think it's appropriate for us. Right. It was really fascinating. Right. Because, and my buddy felt bad. He said, oh, he said, I didn't see that coming. I said, don't even worry about it because here's the deal. Like I get the sense that she is incredibly precious about her brand and about her work. And, you know, we very intentionally have quite a contemporary casual vibe about everything we're doing because that's what it is. We're inclusive. We're not exclusive. So I bring that up just because, you know, the art world is incredibly diverse and, fr and fragmented and dysfunctional. And, you know, it has, and there is no system really. I mean, there are systems within systems and yeah, you know, listen, the, the blue chip art world of the billionaires and, you know, the multimillion dollar banksies and what, like you can have that world. That's, that's its own ecosystem and whatever, you know, my whole thing is about making sure that artists can earn a living while they're alive through their art paying their rent and being able to afford a decent education for their kids, et cetera, et cetera. That's all, you know, we're not talking about getting rich here. We're talking about fair, equitable uh, living wage. Right. I couldn't agree more. And also not being taken advantage of and exploited by industries. Yep. When you think about artist exploitation uh, or exploitation of artists by companies and industries, what are some of the more egregious stories that, that you remember or think of? Oh, well, there's so many. I mean, they're happening daily now. Unfortunately, the ones that I'm closest to, I can't speak yeah, on. Yeah, right, sure. <laughs> but it's every day now that you read a story that, you know, a car company, uh, a television station, people are all using people's artwork without permission. Mm -hmm. And then the battle is tough, even if the artist is ready for the battle it's not an easy one and some of them don't have many of them don't have the resources to even start the fight that's right you know access to resources is key and i mean i know there are like you know what is the you know, volunteer lawyers for the arts and things like that and and there are some lawyers that will take on cases because they're pro bono yeah well they, they represent big enough payouts potentially that they'll take it on uh, pro bono and a few of those cases have been won, right? H&M was a famous case not too long ago. Your friend. 
Thank you, Revoke. Shit. I love his art, too. I love his whole new thing. I got to get one of his pieces, by the way. I want to figure that out. And then that Cadillac, I think there's a, a Mercedes d- d- case that came up yes, recently. Yes, where they had a bunch of several different artists in the background and they had the Mercedes drive by and there were several different artists that images appeared in that video. I'm not sure how that one all worked out. I, I think it's still, I think they're countersuing. Mercedes yeah. is countersuing the artists. Yeah. There is this rule that film often thinks they can get away with, which is called a three-second rule, where if they're just driving past something and it's less than three seconds, they don't think they have to pay. But there are many attorneys that will tell you that is arguable. It depends on if it's considered a feature or not. Oh, interesting. Yeah, right, right. Boy, it's a can of worms, isn't it? Yes, it it is. (laughs) You know, I, you know, theft is, again just a real thing. And I don't care if you're a starving artist, quote unquote, or if you're Gillette, you know, theft is a huge issue, right? I remember years ago when I was working with Gillette, we were doing a bunch of uh, packaging design work for their razor uh, cartridges. And that's where they make their money with the razor cartridges. And this was late nineties. And the quote unquote packaging design project really was one part of a much larger retail merchandising project because the brief was all about mitigating and reducing theft because these blades were just flying off the shelves and not the not the way they wanted, you know? Which is why now when I go to Rite Aid, I have to get them to unlock the door. That's right. You door. have to <laughs> unlock that shit. You got to like, it's so annoying. And, you know, on and on and on. I mean, theft is is a thing. But here's my point with, with so many of these murals. Artists don't do themselves any favors when they agree to do art and do murals for free. And many of these murals that you see on the street were done for free. That being said, I also understand because it's a complicated issue. There's no clear cut. You know, if an artist has a wall and wants to gift a mural to the community, great. That's on them. That's their choice, right? They're gifting the mural to the community. But so many times what happens is a private real estate owner has a wall, invites the artist, says, hey, you know, uh, I've got this wall for you. How would you like to do a mural? And that's an opening gambit for negotiation. It's like, oh, sure, you know, and what's the budget, right? But they, we don't have that conversation because for whatever reason, the ego gets stroked. They want to do the mural for free. and Exactly. Well, know. it's often not that they want to do it for free. From my experience, too, is yeah. they are talked into doing it by telling them what a good publicity move this is going to be for them. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Exposure bucks. Yes. And if you do honestly want to do a mural just for exposure, that's great. But do it in a community space, not not a privately owned space. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So these are the nuances and these are the things that I feel like, you know, because we're having these conversations, because we're, again, trying to expose you sunlight and expose these things, like maybe new models, new ideas, new solutions will come to light. But 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 artists are the first line of defense, you know, and can't help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves. And it, it should be a negotiation. And again, not, I'm not talking about getting rich. I'm talking about a fair, rational 
approach to earning a buck. You know, I have this theory that, well, theory, but this kind of idea, I haven't quite hashed it all out, but, you know, because we want to overcomplicate it, you know, and I feel like I have this, you know, there's this tendency of me to try to, well, I mean, you know, try to find all uh, potential solutions to problems, right? So if an artist wants to make, you know, $100,000 a year, right? Because they feel like that's a good amount of money for them. $100,000 is a lot of fucking money. I don't care who you are. Okay, cool. That's your goal. Now you know what the goal is. Okay, how many hours in a week? How many hours in a in a week's in a month? So on and so you break it down, whatever that hourly wage is. You know, it, it it the the first the first bit is to know what your time's worth. Right? You can't negotiate if you don't know what your time's worth. And if you had a number, like let's say it's fifty dollars an hour, and you figure that wall is gonna take you 40 hours, right? Plus materials, plus the rental of the scissor lift or whatever it is, okay. Like that becomes your rock bottom, you know, your walk away price, right? And then what I would say is because you, um, whatever that number is, let's say it's it's five grand. I would say double it and call it ten grand because then you've built in the margin, you've you've created space to negotiate, and you know what your rock bottom is. Yes. And if they can't meet that, then you walk away. Yes, and yeah. that's something all artists should know, if, especially if they're dealing with any sort of corporation. Corporations are negotiators. That's what they do by nature. Yep. So they are not going to start with their best price, nor should you. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that are that I think artists fail to realize sometimes is that they devalue the work for all artists everywhere. As soon as they agree to work for free, then they're they're then they're they're basically you know harming the craft. Exactly. And yeah, and then that that corporation, that company, that person, whoever it may be yeah. getting this stuff for free, will then expect it free the next time and a different artist will then be in the exact same situation. That's for sure. And you know, earlier we were talking about this kind of this merging of the commercial art and fine art world. You know, the commercial art world and you know, I think about it, you know, because I come from that world of, you know, marketing services, creative services, advertising, branding, packaging design, that kind of thing, that world, there is, you know, there, there are well-established rigors and norms and guidelines and policies that inform the business dealings of the art buyer and the art seller, right? So if you're a photographer getting hired to do a food shoot for McDonald's, I mean, there are, you know, so on and so, and I think that there is an opportunity for our friends, our artist friends, our contemporary artist friends, to look at some of these guidelines and look at some of these practices from the commercial art side and get inspired and start using some of these things or adapting some of these things for their own needs. You're completely right, and there is a lot of things that can be learned. And photographers are great examples. Uh, even a lot of photographers that cross over from the commercial to the fine art world, they have that background and they know 
the difference between work for hire and their own work. And that's a lot of things that painters need to understand, too, is that when you're doing work for hire, you're giving away all your rights. So you better be getting paid for it. That's right. (laughs) Hell yes. Hell yes. There's a premium to that. There should be a premium for that. There should be a premium for a rush job. There, you know, (laughs) all these different things. And, you know, and, and so many of the things that, you know, you and I know, and we've talked about, it's like, look, it's not okay for you to complain if you haven't taken the proper steps to protect your copyright, you know, filing it, you know, with the government, I I make that part of your practice, Mm -hmm. right? I would also argue, you know, get a high res museum quality image of every canvas that you create or every piece of art that you create, because that's your IP. You can license that, you can monetize that, you know. I definitely recommend both those things, but they're all, they're not... Inexpensive, not inexpensive. <laughs> no, well, the copyright uh, deal is affordable. It's like you know what, twenty, thirty bucks. I forget now. It's not. It's, it's you know thirty-five or fifty-five, depending on which version you want. That's right, and and I think you can do multiple pieces on one application. It's tedious. It's annoying, and nobody likes going on the government website. It's like going to the fucking DMV or the dentist. You hate it. You know, it's if you're a professional. You do these things, I think. and But yes, the museum quality photograph thing is not uh, cheap. But, uh, but but also on that, I mean, a recommendation for an artist yeah. would be get the digital capture. You don't necessarily have to have them do the processing. You could always do that when you have the money or the need for that image to be processed. Just getting the capture done is not that expensive. So yeah. you get all the captures done inexpensively, right. then hold off on the processing. Ah, okay. See, so see, not dropping that knowledge. And Martin in the house. <laughs> when it comes to doing the capturing, do you know any vendors or resources that uh, artists can call? There are several. Uh, first, I would recommend my husband, Gregory. Well, there you go. Greg, <laughs> shout out Greg. Yep. 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 Good. Well, enough said. Yes. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, look, we love these. I mean, these artists are our friends. We love them. You know, they're, they're important critically important to the spirit of mankind. So we want to advocate for them and protect them. And so we're not mad at you. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we're not mad. We just, you know, are are trying to advocate and and debate, you know, on your behalf, because ultimately it is up to them. It's not up to you or I, unfortunately. And I just feel like when when one becomes and here's here's a word that's overused these days, when one becomes woke to their power, they get bold, they get confident and artists need more confidence. They need more boldness because their power is unique in this world and invaluable to a human culture. It absolutely is. And, you know, you'll hear people talking about defunding the arts and the government and things like that. And there's so many people who write it off as not important when it has been a part of civilization since the beginning of civilization, since people figured out how to take pigments and put them on the wall. I mean, it's nothing new and it's something people really desire wouldn't still exist. Yeah. Well, that reminds me, I used to, 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 to say, joke about the fact that the Graffiti is mankind's oldest art form because, of course, cavemen were writing on walls, exactly, right? Exactly, for sure. This, this, is, this is it, you know? And we need to express ourselves, right? We need to, you know, it, it's it's a when you're an artist or when you're creative, right? It, it's not a job, it's a calling. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what artists are Sugar Press working with these days? Oh, the list keeps growing. Let's I think hear it. I think we're up to 80 artists now. <laughs> 80? 80. Ooh, yes. That's amazing. Uh, yep. So obviously, you know, two of our all-stars are Man One and Colette Miller. Yeah, shout out. Yes, love them both. And, you know, can't get enough of either one of their art. So both of you, bring me more. <laughs> <laughs> and then let's see, we have a show opening at the last bookstore coming up. The artist reception will actually be on November 2nd. We're opening the show a little early and then giving some time so we can fall right between Halloween and Day of the Dead for a fun little party on November 2nd. We'll be featuring three artists, David Young from the Bay Area, who is new, fairly new to Sugar Press, and then Haiti Escobar is a L.A. local, extremely talented young lady. And then lastly is a young man that goes by BioWorks, who Bioworks. does some very cool, very detailed pieces. So it's nice. going to be an amazing show. And that's at the last bookstore. Correct. Okay. 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 Where is the last bookstore? I should know this. The last bookstore is at Spring and Fifth downtown. Okay. On the second floor of the last bookstore is what's called the Spring Arts Collective, and there's a gallery space in there. That's where the show will be. Okay. Fantastic. Boy, I mean, you're just on fire because- You've got this show coming up. You've just, uh, you know, you, you, I know I wanted to ask you about Kaboo because you just got back from Kaboo a couple of weeks ago. That was uh, exhausting. Yes, it was, but a blast as well. Yeah. And I got to see Snoops. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love some Snoop. Yes, it was all worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you, you also, I think, had mentioned to me, you know, the other day when we were chatting that this year Kaboo was the first time you had folks come into your space to look at art that also happened to be high on psychedelics. Yes. So, you know, this was our fourth Kaboo, and I'm sure it was happening some before, but it was rampant this year, and everyone just wanted to tell you about it. So I guess mushrooms are legal now in California? Yeah, mushrooms are legal, as I understand it, in, I think, Oakland or San Francisco, like the Bay Area, somewhere in the Bay Area, They've been legalized, and then they're legal in Colorado. Yes. So yes. I guess that that freedom just made everyone feel like they could they were free to talk about it yes, and share yes, the experience. Yes. <laughs> but it was a very interesting, very funny thing, because they were all mostly people from their late 30s to early 50s who were doing the psychedelics, but they all had used the buddy system like a grown-up should, where they had a sober friend with them ah, who yeah. would then, you know, come into the conversation and go, excuse my friend, and they're not making sense. They're tripping right now. Talk talk about a good <laughs> negotiating opportunity. Like, okay, so, oh, so you want me to be the sober one? Okay, what am I getting out of this? How do you put up with your ass for eight hours? <laughs> But I had never had an experience of trying to sell art to someone who was on psychedelics before. And I, Did we're, gonna, we're, were sales better or worse? Sales were great. Yeah. I'm not sure how I did with the people who were tripping, though. I'm going to have to brush up those skills. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's a delicate touch. But speaking the, the, of... No, no, no. The, no, this print is not melting. No, no it's not. I assure no. you. Yes. <laughs> And they they did want to touch a lot too. Yeah, they oh, wanted right. to touch the art a lot. Of course, yeah. No, 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 no. Sorry, <laughs> can't do that. But I would like to give a few more shout outs to some of the amazing yes. artists at Kaboo. 
Aaron Yoshi was there with us, Gloria Muriel, and Amanda Lynn, who is the art director of Kaboo and also showed with us this year. Some really strong powerhouse ladies. Fantastic. Well, do me a favor. Let's uh, get them on the podcast. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been uh, all the, I want all 80 artists. Uh, <laughs> Uh, on this show sooner rather than later. Well, that's fantastic. So sales were great. Would you say this was the best year? It was. Yeah, out of four? Yes. Yeah. And there was some big news, right? Didn't Kaboo get purchased? Yes. So Kaboo next year will be at the Petco Center in San Diego. It's now uh, owned by Virgin. Ah, our our Sir Richard Branson. Exactly. (laughs) Interesting. Well, that could be a good thing. Yes, I I think it will be. I think he usually spends his money wisely, Mm -hmm, let's hope. mm -hmm. And the feedback I've gotten from the team so far is that the art components will stay intact and they just expect it to be bigger and better. Right. So I have a a story. I came this close (laughs) to meeting Richard years ago. I met a gentleman who has a film production company in London. If I remember right, I think it's Red Dog Pictures, but his partner in the film production company is Richard Branson's son. And so we had met and we were talking about what we could do together. I forget now how we linked up, but essentially I pitched him this idea that I've been, that I've had for a long, long time, at least 15 years. And now the idea has been realized, but in, in some ways, but the, but Virgin was the perfect brand for this. I said, you know, we need to essentially do a art competition and the winner will be chosen because a Virgin has trains and magazines and, you know, any number of properties, we could make sure that voting is widespread and you get, you know, cause they're all over the, the world as well. So you have artists from different parts of the world, but the winning artists by vote, you know, across the world would get the opportunity to paint 747, you know, Virgin transatlantic uh, jetliner. And there was this whole, and, and we were, we had the pitch, it was done. It was great. Everybody loved it. The CMO of Virgin Atlantic loved it. It was going to go up to the CEO and eventually maybe Richard. And then the galactic accident happened, the Galactica explosion. And it just, you know, obviously deflated everybody's spirits and the project went nowhere. I mean, it was such a horrible tragedy. But that being said, I think they are now doing space uh, they're booking trips on this yes, they crazy are. thing would you do that would you uh, <laughs> no you wouldn't no. really absolutely not why not <laughs> i can are are you a, do you like to fly i i don't mind flying okay okay but i'm not a, it's not a fear of flying but the claustrophobia part of it does get to me <laughs> okay all right so being in a smaller yes. vessel and, and, you know, and the and the time, and the time the constraint, the stars part of it, I love okay. too. Okay, but the time constraint. Yeah, I I, I went to South Africa once. Okay, I, I don't, wow, amazing! I've never been. So, and I went with my parents. It mm-hmm. was a beautiful, beautiful trip. We went on safari. On the way back, though, my mother really failed on the planning part of the trip. And on the way there, we made all kinds of stops, and it was beautiful. On the way back, we literally left Botswana and went back to Indiana 
and were either on a plane or in an airport for 48 hours straight. Brutal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, if I can't handle that, I'm not going to space. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I, I think right now, my understanding of it, it's a very cross prohibitive, right? So, you know, good luck affording it. I think the ticket's like $100,000 or something. And it's just for a minute. Like, I mean, I think you fly up, you get to zero gravity, you know, you hang there for a little bit and then basically you come back down. So it's it's like a roller coaster ride, essentially. Well, that might be faster <laughs> than going to South Africa. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I don't think the time constraint is 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 as big uh, or as significant maybe as I can, that. Maybe I disaster. can do it. <laughs> what about you? If you get a free ride, are you gonna go? Oh, I would totally do it. <laughs> I would totally All right, do you it. go first. Then. Yeah, no, I I mean the I'm in a weird place in my life because, as you know, a fairly new dad. I became a dad at 42. I'm 49. And, you know, being a dad, being a parent, having kids, it's it's just crazy and it's scary and it's exhausting and it's inspiring and it's frustrating and it's beautiful and, you know, all those things. But boy, did it really put a cramp in my lifestyle. <laughs> and and, and, and by, by that, I mean, I just think twice about doing, you know, reckless, quote unquote, irresponsible things like skydiving or bungee jumping, which I've done going to space. My inclination is to do it, you know, today, right now. But then you think twice like, oh, shit, if something went wrong. Well, dad's not with us anymore. Why? Well, because he, he just he's a, he, he wanted to be a space cadet. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! I really lived up to my uh, yeah to my uh, make purpose. For a yeah, cool story, but not good parenting. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we digress. So, Kaboo is now owned by Virgin. You killed it this year. What else do we need to know? What kind of was there a, a best-selling artist uh, this year? Did did one artist really stand out? The young lady I mentioned that will be at the last bookstore, Haiti Escobar. Mm-hmm. She was a big hit at Kaboo this year. We're really proud of her. She's young and but extremely talented. So how did you find her, and how or how did she find you? Originally, Vile met her somewhere just randomly Mm -hmm. and he said you should meet my friend Anne Mm -hmm. and then we've been working with her ever since and she's an amazing talent hard worker and a mother so she's got her hands full yeah right 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 Uh, that's fantastic so 80 artists like what are the criteria by which you choose to take on a new artist because I mean and at what point you know does it get unwieldy because obviously you want to make sure you're servicing all of your artists, right, in in the best way. So talk about that a little bit. How do you manage all that? Well, a lot of them have different needs. Some yes. of them, you know, really, they, they're out doing their own gallery shows or they have gallery representation. So really all they need us for is to do limited edition prints. Yes. So not all of them take up a ton of time. Right. But then others, you know, others just have a connection with us and want us to be part of their shows, even if it is another gallery. So it is a it is a balancing act, mm-hmm. but we have no intentions of slowing down. We want to keep on bringing on more yep. artists, and there is no one size fits all. Yeah, we pick art that we like. That's where it starts. <laughs> By the way, I'm so glad you fucking said that because this is my whole thing. Like, if it if you don't like it, don't bother. Because you you need to have integrity with what you're doing. And it all starts with 
how you feel about the art. Do you love it or not? Does it move you or not? And I am not going to be the salesperson who has to say something that I don't believe in. So it's a lot easier to sell art that I do like. (laughs) 100%. Well, this is also an important point for would-be art buyers, you know, or new, new potential art buyers. Because, you know, there's a certain segment of the art world, right, that wants to, out of their own self-importance or whatever, want to make it a very precious, a very complicated thing. And at certain levels, it is a very precious, complicated thing. I understand buying a, you know, a Picasso at Sotheby's auction is, is its own kind of thing. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how do you bring in new buyers into the market who right now are probably buying prints at Target or whatever, but could afford to buy an original piece of art for 500 bucks if they really liked it. If they really liked it, that's all you need. Well, honestly, the, it's not that different from the Sotheby's world. I used to, when I sold Picassos, I would tell people the same thing. Because the art market has ups and downs just like the yep. stock market. Yep. So if you're going to spend a half a million dollars on a Picasso etching or whatever, mm-hmm. you should buy the one you like, not just buy it because it's Picasso. Yeah. Because the price could fall out at any time. Right. right. So same thing goes for whatever your budget is. Buy what you like. But to speak to buying something at Target versus buying something from an artist that's not mass produced or wasn't just a design, nothing against designers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but wasn't just a designer hired to do a piece that then was printed 50,000 times. For even for your $75, $100 purchase, there are artists out there doing limited edition prints that are in those price points. Yes. There are young artists out there who have originals that are, you know, close to those price points where instead of a print, you could have a painting for $500 to $1,000. And then you have something that you really love. And it's not just decoration that you're going to change That's when you right. remodel your kitchen. It's That's a right. piece of art that you love and you'll, you can have it the rest of your life. Yeah. It's, it becomes, it could even, you know, should be become an heirloom that your kids hang and, you know, any number of things. And I appreciate you pointing that out. I mean that, you know, I do get cynical because I feel like, you know, at on the, au- the auction world has become a, just a mon- money laundering kind of uh, world. And, and there's, you know, that shit's going on too, right? There's no love. It's just about the mind. There's no love for the art, right? But there are clearly people that are, you know, collecting for the right reasons. But, but yeah, I mean, I, and again, getting back to why we're doing not real art, I mean, there is, you and I know this, there's way more art, original art available for sale, priced between 100 bucks and 50,000 bucks than 50,000 and above. And, and more people to buy that art if only they feel empowered to do so. Yes. And you don't need anything more than just a love for what you're looking at, yeah. right? And it's very easy to do. It, you know, get on Instagram, get on Twitter. If you see somebody you like, send them a message. Yeah. I, I'm not sure a lot of the public realizes that a lot of the artists are that easy to get in touch with. Right. I have a piece of art hanging in my house that I get so many compliments on. And people always say, "Where well, that is so cool. Where did you get that? I said... I bought that for for five bucks at a flea market. 
Yep. And I reframed it. <laughs> and you think it's really something remarkable. And by the way, it is remarkable. I saw it. I saw the potential. I knew what it was. And I, you know, but it just spoke to me. You can find shit that speaks to you, too. You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, because there's in any economy, right, there's a supply side and the demand side. We talk a lot about we've talked a lot about the su- supply side. You know, how do artists, you know, how do they set themselves up for success uh, or failure? You know, but I mean, how do you know how what can they do to be more effective in their sales? But then there's the demand side. And, you know, how do you grow demand? And, you know, the, the current model that we have, the gallery fair auction model, is just one model. It's just one model. There is plenty of potential models out there. You know, innovation just doesn't happen in our world very much. It doesn't. And, I mean, you guys are innovating. I think what we're trying to do, I hope, is innovating and innovative. This woman that I talked to, I wish she would come on our show. And what she's doing with her whole Tupperware party uh, thing, like, I think that's incredibly creative and innovative, you know? So there's ample opportunity. And, you know, it can't be a one-size-fits-all because it's too much of a diverse world. You know, the artists are not a monolithic community and nor, nor are art buyers. So, And the time is becoming even more critical and important for people like us to continue what we're doing, get the word out to the artists and help support them because the gallery model is becoming more of a corporation all the time. Los Angeles hasn't necessarily faced this yet, but one of the biggest art galleries in New York now went into Chelsea and bought up most of the galleries that had been known and treasured as, you know, reputable galleries are now owned by one giant conglomerate. Yeah. And LA will be next. Yeah. So innovation, business models, you know, you and I worked on a project in the springtime that I would argue was somewhat innovative and interesting. The context was a fundraiser, right? For a school. And in this, in this context, the way we did it, right, was, no, in this context, the school is the gallery, right? So most times with fundraisers, artists are asked to donate their piece so that that money, all the money goes to the, to the school or to the organization, right? And, you know, artists oftentimes do that because they're, you know, nice good people who want to give back and help the community, what have you. However, and I would argue that's exploitative and a loser when it comes to helping that artist make ends meet and pay the rent. What our school, you and I, the school that we worked with, what they didn't realize was that a gallery split with an artist is 50-50. When I told them that it was 50-50, the woman was like in shock. She's like, I can't fucking believe that, you know? So there's a lot of ignorance and a lot of not ignorance, I mean, there's ignorance, but naivete and just, you know, uh, uh, just they, people don't know, right. right, how it really works or how it works. And, you know, I would encourage artists to find those organizations that have potential buyers and think of them as the gallery and do a 50-50 split. So when that fundraiser comes to you and says, hey, we're having a fundraiser, we'd like to, you know for you to participate with one of your pieces of art, be like, okay, great. It's 50, 50. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. That's a great idea. And I think they'll find that a lot of people will say yes. Yes, absolutely. If if the organization understands that how it works. And also, I think they understand that artists are often struggling and are their own charity. Yes. (laughs) But the organization gets to to tell a good good news story, too. It's like this. We're splitting this with the artists. We're supporting the arts, you know, because, you know, what is a gallery? The gallery is just supposed to be, you know, this is a bit cynical, but the gallery is kind of supposed to. It's a retail outlet. And it's a retail outlet because it has buyers, potential. It's supposed to, right? It's supposed to have uh, a network. Uh, it's supposed to have some walk-in traffic, what have you. But that's just one marketplace. Where are the other marketplaces? And that's why I think artists need to start thinking about um, when it comes to innovation and disruption and new business models, where are those alternative marketplaces? I mean, if I was an artist listening to this, I would write down five charities in my you know city or where i live and i would go to them proactively and say hey i want to help you raise money you know i'm willing to donate my these are i'm really i'm willing to to take these five paintings these three paintings and include them into your fundraiser and you know like the deal i have in my art gallery i'll split it with you 50 50 you know that's a great idea and especially with charities and events that have a built-in market that's right it, there is another pattern, though, that I see a lot of artists doing that concerns me a bit is people showing art at places that aren't galleries, at furniture stores, yes. at restaurants. Yes. And all of those things potentially can be good. I just want the artists to watch out for the commission they're giving those type places yes. because that is not an art gallery. They do not have a built-in client base who's going to come in and buy things. Right. And often they'll ask the artists to do all the work hanging it themselves. Yeah. 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 So I want artists just to be careful. I'm not saying there aren't great ones out there because I'm sure there are, but just be careful what you're getting yourself into. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I, I'll see you one and raise you one because I would argue that nine times out of 10, those go nowhere. And you just have to ask yourself, does the benefit outweigh the cost? I've, it's costing me time and energy to hang this stuff, to to frame it, to get it ready. Then I got to hope, once I get it all up, then I got to hope that somebody knows enough to, to, to answer questions if somebody asks about that piece. Is the sell-through really going to happen, right? Are there exceptions? Of course. I'm sure there's a good example or two out there. I just would say but they, they are the exception. And you have to do that math of saying, like, is does the benefit outweigh the cost? And I would argue nine times out of 10, it's not. And so just pass on those opportunities. Because also it's about your brand, right, as an artist. Like, do you want your art associated with, you know, with, I don't know, with barbecue ribs? I don't know. I mean. I can tell Maybe this one because it was a <laughs> it was a secondhand story and I don't even know the people it was about. But yeah. a friend told me the story the other day about meeting a photographer and he was so excited because he was having a show at a mattress store. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, though, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> I totally approve I of that. Kinda, I kind of want to go. I'm dying to <laughs> I see totally what it looks approve like. Of that, but I want to be able to jump on the mattresses. <laughs> and I want to fuck on the mattresses too. As long as we can jump and or fuck on the mattresses. I'm all in. That is brilliant. I was told it is high-end mattresses. High-end mattresses. Well, this is, this is see that? No, that is one of those exceptional opportunities yes. that you just have to... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
by the way, like if I'm that mattress company, I would be more interested in working with artists to license their art to wrap my mattresses in their art so that each mattress is something more interesting than just a a white rectangle. Absolutely. Or license some artwork to wrap on the outside of your building or have someone paint a mural and draw people in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ann Martin, you and I could just do this all day long. We could. We got to we got to do this more often. Will you come back and play podcasts with me on a more frequent basis? For sure. Okay, great. So we've talked about we've talked about getting your artists on board. We've talked about you coming back. We've got to get Greg back here. I mean, there's our future is bright. Yes. Well, you know, I, I adore you. Thank you for all you do to support our uh, efforts here. And I look forward to working together at DesignerCon. We have that coming up. That'll be a heck of a lot of fun. And by the way, we'll see you October 19th for our Not Real Art, the exhibition Absolutely. featuring our grant winners, our 12 grant winners. Hopefully, you know, we'll we'll be, uh, it'll be a nice turnout. I want that for our winners. So yeah, we got a, we got a lot coming up. We do. Very busy. All right, my friend. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Hey there, thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at Not Real Art Official. We appreciate the support. Sourdough, out.